When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Evan Lazar here, Patriots insider and host of the Patriots Beat podcast here on the CLNS Media Network. As always, our content is powered by our exclusive wagering partners, betonline.ag. Use the promo code CLNS50 for 50% off your welcome deposit. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. I'm Evan Lazar, joined as always by Alex Barth. This is a Q&A edition of Patriots Press Pass on this Thursday afternoon in mid-May. So if you have any Patriots-related questions, go ahead and drop those in the chat, and we will get to as many as we can over the next hour. But until we let some people trickle in, some questions get in here, let's just go over where things stand right now with the Patriots. A few logistical things we found out over the last couple of days. The preseason schedule Alex is now set. It is, uh, I'll pull it up here in a second. And we also have the OTAs basically outlined for us as well that start on Monday, media in attendance on Monday for the opening day of Patriots phase three, which is when still no pads, but we at least get to see some actual football, some offense against defense, some uh, position battles, some, you know, just real football type of drills, not just running around and doing strength and conditioning and things like that. So once again, uh, if you have any Patriots questions, go ahead and drop them in the chat. We're going to start firing off on some of those here in a second. But uh, let's start with the preseason schedule that we just found out about about a half an hour ago, Alex. Uh, Pretty chalk here for the Patriots. August 11th at 7 against the Giants. August 19th at 7 against the Panthers. Both of those games are at Gillette Stadium. And then August 25th going out to Vegas to play the Raiders. The one thing that I think you can take away, not that there's much takeaway from a preseason schedule, is that 16-day layoff between the preseason finale and the start of the regular season. Do do you like that? I mean, how do you feel about the layoff? Because it is a long layoff for for everybody at that point in time. I mean, I I do like it. I I, I think – First of all, it's better for the league. Having roster cuts over Labor Day weekend was always kind of a weird thing, you know, for a league that prides itself and putting itself in the spotlight. um, You know, that didn't necessarily facilitate that. I think it's good to get, you know, that way if you get nicked up in that last preseason game, you're still good to go. Not that, you know, a ton of consequential players play in that game. I think for the Patriots, the fact that they'll be likely uh, out in the desert for multiple days, they'll have those, uh, it, it's reported that we joint practices with the Raiders, allow them to reacclimate to the East Coast, all of that. Um, yeah, I like it. I think it's helpful. I, I, I think that little gap is good. It also just allows more time for roster moves in that window, too. It used to be, you know, if you grabbed a player during roster cuts, 
well, now it's game week, and that guy may not be able to go for week one or two. Now it kind of gives you some more time to get that player in the mold. So I, I, I like it. I like the kind of extra week between the end of the preseason and the start of the regular season. I'm a fan of that. Yeah, and I remember last year there actually was two more training camp practices after the final preseason game, and those were some pretty intense practices. They were close to the public. It was just us media that got to be in there. And I remember them being pretty intense practices and Mac Jones kind of took the reins from there pretty, pretty staunchly from Cam Newton. And that was uh, more or less where it was finalized that we could kind of see on the field that Mac Jones was going to win that job. But I remember those practices being intense. I also like the 16 day layoff. I think that the players probably like it as well to get their bodies right and not have to go right in from training camp to the regular season. You mentioned the last uh, preseason game against the Raiders. Rumors are that they're probably going to have joint practices out there in Vegas. This seems to be a, a Belichick thing of maybe giving the players a week of practice out in the desert to ha try their best to simulate what it's going to be like in Miami in the regular season opener in week one. It's a little bit of different heat, right? I mean, desert heat versus South Beach is a little bit of different type of heat, but heat is heat, I suppose. So I do think that there is some simulation going on there because I don't think it's a mistake that the Patriots and the Raiders not only requested to play each other in the preseason to set up this week of joint practices, but also requested it specifically to be in the final week of the preseason when the Patriots typically play the Giants. This is the first time since 2004 that the Patriots won't play the Giants in the preseason finale. That's going to be a new team there, which is interesting, I think. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, there's no connection. Well, I guess there still is a connection, right? With it being day ball, but yeah, a little bit. I, you know, is Matt Patricia is as close as, as Bill's going to get, and I, I think he's closer with, or sorry, not Matt Patricia, Josh McDaniels is closer, I'd guess, with Belichick than than day ball is, and that's what he wants from that that end of the season practice. So, um, yeah, a little bit of a shake up there for sure. Yeah. All right. Let's get into some of these questions, and uh, once again, just to reiterate, on Monday. Alex, you pulling double duty on Monday? You coming to OTAs and Celtics? I know you're. I'll be at a OTAs. I got to figure out how I'm gonna, you know, handle that that flip. But I, yeah, I believe I'll be at both. I believe I'll be at OTAs and then be at the Celtics game. So that's a grinder right there. That, that's a that's, that's somebody that that's got his uh, priorities straight in the working order there, Alex. I appreciate that. Anyways, so Monday, uh, Alex and I will both be out there. It sounds like on at OTA. So we'll do a pod probably Monday night if we can. Uh, maybe before the Celtics, depending on Alex's schedule, if not Tuesday. Well, no, I'll be at the Garden. Oh, That's right. So we'll do a so Tuesday. That'll probably be Tuesday, yeah. We'll do a Tuesday to recap what we watched on Monday out at OTA practice. So we'll definitely have an OTA pod recapping what goes on on Monday when we get to go out there and see the Patriots for the first time. With all that being said, let's get to some of these questions. I think um, Mr. Miyagi here, Mr. Wax on, Wax off, has I think the opening question that everybody's on – is on everybody's minds right which is is this hysteria for lack of a better word about the patriots coaching staff specifically their offensive staff a media driven narrative to push clicks and to push listeners in middle of may when there really isn't much to talk about or are you legitimately concerned about the direction of the offense and the direction of the coaching staff in general i, I do think that this is a fair question to ask because it's clearly Topic number one for this team right now is the succession plan from Josh McDaniels to what sounds like a duo of Matt Patricia and Joe Judge leading the offense. 
And is this real concern or is this just media fodder at this point? Yeah, I, maybe this is a little bit of a cop out. I guess what I would say is I think there are legitimate questions about some elements of the coaching staff. Yeah. And that has kind of run away into the whole thing. I think, and we talked about this on Tuesday, right? The quarterback's coach. You have a rookie, you have a young quarterback in his second year, he used a first round pick on him. There's legitimate questions about what the team is doing about his development. The quarterback coach would play a big role in that. Not having a clearly defined quarterback's coach or a quarterback exclusive coach or anything like that. I think that's legitimate storyline. I don't know that it's doom and gloom that there isn't a defined one publicly. I'm sure they know behind the scenes what's going on. I think also some of this is not necessarily questioning the lack of titles, but questioning what we believe is going on, what we what's kind of been put in front of us. So um, I, I, you know, I think some of it run away, you know, Matt Patricia coaching the offensive line. I have no problem with that. There's no, you know, there's nothing really to that one, especially when he has Billy yeah. Gates working with him. Uh, I'll say it again. The one for me, I think that and with the play callers too, it's going to be with the defense. It's going to be what they did last year. I think some of it is a continuation with the frustration of the way the defense came to an end last year. Um, and, and I'll say this again, too, just because we don't know doesn't mean they don't know. I think the there is a storyline in the whole coaching situation. I think it evolves solely around Mac Jones and the quarterback's coach. Beyond that, yeah, I'll be honest. I'm not, you know, it's not something that's got me super heated or anything. Yeah, I, I think that both of us are a little bit more tamed about this situation for, I think is the best way to yeah. put it. And some other people, I think the biggest thing is for me, and you kind of mentioned the quarterback stuff and the quarterback coach. And I, I do think that that's important. I don't actually have any problem whatsoever with Joe judge and Matt Patricia being on the staff. Those two guys have a ton of experience coaching football. And you're, I think a lot of people are out there almost talking like they're the, they're the head coach, right? Like there is no bill Belichick right. and they're the head coach. If Joe Judge, if this was the Giants uh, sands uh, a year ago and Joe Judge was the head coach of the New England Patriots, then, yeah, I'd be concerned. As an assistant coach, a position coach, it's a completely different job. It's just nothing like being a head coach whatsoever. And we have seen so many times, time and time again, that some guys just aren't meant to be head coaches but are actually really good position coaches, right? It's just the way the league works. And – for everybody to jump on the bandwagon that Matt Patricia and Joe Judge can't coach because they failed as head coaches away from the nest, well, then what does that say about Josh McDaniels, right? Because he did the exact same thing, came back to the Patriots as the OC, and was a pretty darn good offensive coordinator for a decade with the Patriots. So I, I do think it's a little bit overblown in that just because you're a bad head coach definitely doesn't mean that you're a bad position coach. Now, you you kind of talked about the big picture with the quarterback. I, I look at it more of a big picture with the offense in general. And I talked about this on Tuesday. My biggest concern with the Patriots coaching staff being the way that it is right now is innovation. Are they going to be able to update, to adapt, to build this scheme around Mac Jones and the playmakers that they brought in, bring along guys like Tyquan Thornton and get the most out of that return on investment and really update and upgrade the scheme from what it was with, with Josh McDaniels, or are they going to essentially be forced to running the same system that they've ran for the entire McDaniels tenure, just because they don't really have the people in place to change it. Right. And I, I do think that there needs to be some upgrading, some adaptation 
more so than just, oh, well, we're going to call this set of plays instead of that set of plays. Like, they need some new installs. They need some new schemes. They need some 2022-type football in this offense that they don't currently have. And I'm just not sure that Matt Patricia and Joe Judge are the guys that are going to have the chops or that you really want to be the guys that are integrating that style of system. So if that were to come, then maybe it's more next year where they kind of have this year to hold over. It's almost like the Cam Newton season, right? Where you have a year where you're trying to, yeah, but with the coaching staff, exactly. Where you have this year to get by and then next year, maybe Bill O'Brien comes back or next year, maybe you, you get somebody from the college ranks that has some of that new age flavor that can come on staff and help you integrate some of those schemes. So innovation and max long-term development, I think is a legitimate concern. Joe Judge and Matt Patricia being here, I think you're just kind of picking on those two guys because of how it went for them as head coaches. Yeah, it's it's not about necessarily that I I think those guys would would ruin Mac. It's that is this the best situation for Mac, right? Right. You know, could they have retained Bo Hardigree? Could they have you know gotten out and brought back Jerry Shaplinsky before he went to Vegas? Something like that, where they could have made it a better situation. I will say, I agree with you on the Bill O'Brien thing. There was actually a quote about a month ago where they asked him about returning to Alabama because he had a couple options. And he said something about, you know, a lot of OCs have stayed here two years and gotten a title, right? And I think there's something to that. You look at under Saban, a lot of these coordinators stay for two years and they get a title within their th- those two years. O'Brien right. obviously didn't get the title last year. I wouldn't be surprised. And may- hopefully maybe we can talk about this later in the show. I think Saban's going to be in a war path this year. I don't think he was about to let Bill O'Brien out the door. Uh, I think Patriots fans need to be huge, huge, huge Alabama fans this year because I think it becomes much more realistic that Bill O'Brien leaves Alabama next season if he gets his title with Saban this year. Yeah, that, that's a fair point. And I, I think that we're both on the same page here that let's let's give it a chance to like we're talking about yeah. this in May, like it's going to be a disaster automatically. And I think that's just based off of reputation for those two guys. Let's give it a chance. Let's take a breather. Uh, let's see how it works out before we start burying these guys. And, I, and I'm not trying to go on my Patriots uh, footy pajamas and, and, and be a honk and defend everything the team does. We're all skeptical. But I, I think right. it's more than fair to sit back and say, well, let's at least see how it goes now. We're all skeptical. That's fair. Uh, but pronouncing it dead before it's even started is a little bit of a, of a stretch to me as well. I want to take a second to shout out our friends at betonline.ag. Our partners at BetOnline continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all the latest sports developments, including updated odds on the playoffs, fights, and even next season's futures. BetOnline is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It's super easy to get started, so head to the website today or use your mobile device to join and use our promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. All right, uh, moving on here to kind of a coaching question, personnel question, talking about specifically two tight end sets. I think this is an important conversation to have schematically as we move forward. Obviously, last year they did not get enough out of that two tight end package, that 12 personnel grouping, if you want to call it that, 
with Hunter Henry and Jonu Smith on the field together. They didn't use it enough. They didn't get enough production out of it, and that's probably why they didn't use it enough. It's kind of a chicken or the egg thing there. But how do you feel about them using both of them at the same time moving forward? And I think ideally what you would see is maybe a little bit more of a specialized role for Johnny Smith right. where they use him more out of the backfield, use him a little bit more as a move piece, chess piece, instead of just pigeonholing him into an inline tight end spot where I think they learned last year, he's really not a fit in their system as a true hand in the dirt and the line tight end. He's somebody that needs to be a little bit more creative with his usage in order to get a best return on investment there. Yeah, so this is something I, I've, I've wondered about. I'm actually writing about it now. It'll be up Monday on 98.5thesportsub.com. We we haven't seen a ton of investment in that pass-catching back role this offseason. You know, they brought back James White. We don't know how healthy he'll be. They let Brandon Bolden go. Uh, they did draft Pierre Strong. We're not entirely sure what his role is. They also yeah. don't have a strong track record of playing rookie running backs right away. And this goes back to something. I don't remember if it was on Tuesday's show or last Thursday show about that, you know, Alabama vacation of the offense and can you get more vertical and then open things up underneath for Johnny Smith to operate with the ball in his hands in space. I wonder if we see, you know, with the depth they have at wide receiver, with the depth they have at tight end, more, more O sets, right? Oh, oh, right. That's the first numbers running back. I yes, always get you got it backwards. You, you know, um, Oh, one sets with four wide receivers, even Oh, yeah. two, Right where you still put three of those guys out there, whether it's, you know, I, I think their best group off the bat is probably Parker, Bourne, and Aguilar, and then we'll see how Thornton comes along, right? If we're talking about a vertical offense, uh, you know, you put those three or three of those four out there, and those guys can get vertical, or all four yeah. of those guys out there, and then you have either Hunter Henry or Jonu Smith, and when Jonu Smith's on the field in that situation, he's the underneath guy, right? He's your He's your run after the catch guy. He's your guy operating out of the backfield. So I love the idea of that. I love the idea of two wide receivers, especially if Johnny Smith is going to be more of an H back as for Dalton Keene and Devin Asiasi, I'm not counting on much. I think Keene has, you know, massive injury issues. He's just got to be healthy. Asiasi is a fine third tight end. That's what he is, but I don't see packages for him. I don't see them aggressively trying to get him on the field, anything like that. I think it'll take injury for him to get out there. Yeah, I'm with you on all of that. I think last year we talked a lot about it. I know I pounded the table just looking at their personnel. The most dynamic passing offense that they could have put out there last year was Aguilar, Bourne, uh, Myers, and the two tight ends, right? Like those five guys out there together. They didn't really run a whole lot of that. It was mostly Brandon Bolden and 11 personnel being out of the backfield on third down or obvious passing situations. I think the main reason why is probably because of pass protection, right? They probably didn't trust from that vantage point, from that that spot, that alignment, Johnny Smith being able to handle the rules and the responsibilities of blitz pickup like Brandon Bolden could. Maybe a year in the system, maybe more training in that spot. They could be a little bit more creative, or maybe they just go five wide empty out of that package and they spread the field. But clearly, unless James White is the old James White, their most dynamic group is going to be three wide receivers and two tight ends. And I, I would love to see especially when it's obvious like a two minute drill or end of game situation where they need to score them, put the five best pass catchers that they have on the team out on the field. And at times as great as Brandon Bolden filled in last year, it felt like a little bit of a wasted spot at times, right? Like yeah. especially at points early on in the Brandon Bolden experience turned it on late, certainly, but beginning of Brandon Bolden experience, it was like, man, 
they're basically playing with four guys, right? So I would love to see it. I don't know if they'll ever do it, but I would love to see that O2 package uh, with the two tight ends and the three wide receivers. That would also probably be the fastest group that they could put out on the field together too. And I think there's a lot of different things that they could do out of that personnel grouping, especially with Johnny's versatility. And that's almost where his value comes in. Like he might not ever produce the way that they're paying him, right? Like he might not ever produce like a $12 million tight end, but if his value presents them that flexibility to be able to use him out of the backfield and be more dynamic on the outside, then I think that that's going to make the offense as a whole better and almost make him worth it in a lot of capacities, kind of like, uh, you know, an Aaron Hernandez sort of role in the way that right. they used to use Hernandez to kind of open up the rest of the offense. Sure. All right. Let's talk your favorite position, Alex. We'll talk running backs. All right. And all right. the fact that the Patriots right now for roster locks, we talked about this last week. It's Ramondre, Damian Harris, assuming he's healthy and, and, and can play James White, Pierre Strong. Those four guys are definitely making the team. We talked to Ty Montgomery today. I think that he's got a really good chance of making the team as well. I think they have a role in mind for him, and that's why he's here. Kevin Harris at least has an outside chance. Maybe they end up redshirting him, but they clearly like something out of him to draft him. It's a deep room. It's a room that certainly has a lot of uh, upside as well, I I would say. I think there's three guys in there, and the younger guys in Harris, Ramondre, and Pierre Strong that have some real talent and real upside for this offense. Is it going, are they going to use these backs? Are they going to use all of them to the point where we're going to see another year of run first offense? I know you, you all were first on the bandwagon last year with that 2001 type of offense, right? Of being a, a more bully ball style team. Now they have this running back depth. Do you see that continuing? I, so I, I don't know about James White. I don't. And I still think they're short a back or two, depending on what happens with JJ Taylor. I, I really, I really believe that. Um, I, Strong's interesting to me because even if he doesn't contribute as a pass catcher, can he be that Deion Lewis change of pace where it's not a bully ball running style, right? It's yeah. tossing the ball, get him the outside one-on-one with a corner or an outside linebacker and see if he can go through him or go around him, something like that. I I, I also think, you know, there's a chance that Damian Harris, Ramondre Stevenson were both good pass catchers in college and neither has been used really much in that role in the NFL, Ramondre a little bit more so last year. I'm interested to see if those guys, you know, catch the ball. In, in my mind, they have three complete running backs right now. It's it's less, you know, a separation of skill sets than it was in the past, at least when you talk about those top three. And then I think James White's a true pass catcher. I think Kevin Harris, J.J. Taylor, true early down backs, although, you know, different running styles, right? I, I don't know that it's going to be more of a of a rushing attack than it was last year. I don't know how it can be more of a run first attack yeah, than it was last year. Right. Right. So I, I, I think they're still dedicated to running the ball. I think what you really saw with the draft and everybody wants to, I, I think what this question's getting at, I know I just kind of talked around it. I, I honestly had to think about the question for a second. I think what this question is getting at is they brought back James White. They drafted two running backs. It looks like, right, it looks like they're loading up on running backs is the plan to run the ball more. Well, here's what I'd say to that. James White, to me, is more of a leadership thing. We don't know if he's going to be able to play. It sounds like they don't know if he's going to be able to play. They brought him back for almost no guaranteed money. I think the idea was just that 
he's a he's a, a major voice in that locker room. He's given a lot to this franchise. You give him the benefit of the doubt that he can get himself healthy and play. The two draft picks, right? I think Pierre Strong, again, can be a pass catcher. I think that's ultimately going to be his role. I think he's here to be the next James White. And yeah. then Kevin Harris, to me, coming off of a back injury is a redshirt guy. Yeah. I don't know that we see him a ton. So I don't think they loaded up on running backs in the way that maybe it appears from 10,000 feet, right? I think their one true running back addition is Pierre Strong, and I think he's here to catch the football. I don't necessarily think they're they're loading up on running backs to run the ball, but I think they don't want to get caught where they were last year, where they lost James White and suddenly lost a major element of their offense. I think they want to make sure they're taken care of there, and that element has to be in the passing game. So I don't look at this as they've loaded up in, on running backs because they run, want to run the ball 50 times every week. I think they made targeted additions in spots they need, and it doesn't I, – I don't think that, you know – Based on the running back moves, I don't think there's an indication that they run any more or any less than they did last season. There's other things they've done that lead me to believe they'll actually run the ball a little bit less. But just within the running backs, I think they're they're more or less where they were last year. I think the running back picks are for 2023, honestly. I think the draft picks themselves. I, I, the Harris one, certainly. Yeah, I, I would be surprised if Strong doesn't play at least a little bit this year. Yeah, I, me Like too. 25, 30%, not a ton, but something like that. But Damian Harris and Ramondre Stevenson are the guys in that backfield, yes. right? Like yes. that—that's those are the two guys in that backfield for this season. Maybe even beyond. I still am not ruling out Damian Harris being here long term. I know that that is the writing seems to be on the wall that that's not going to be the case. But I think there's a couple of things that signal to me that that could happen. Number one is his relationship with Mac Jones. I think that Mac Jones is going to want him here. Those are two Bama guys, but they're also really close off the field. They've been on uh, together at like every Celtics home playoff game for the entire run, right? Like they're right. they're either in the box or they're up, they're courtside. Well, yeah. Let's not forget who else. They, maybe this was the second part of your comment, but let's not forget who, who forget who else they've been with is Robert Kraft. Yeah, yeah. I just think that Damian Harris is one of those guys that gets it. He gets the city. He gets the organization. He gets the role. Yeah, he's a glue guy. And I, I do also look at him and see when we get to see practice and we get to see some of the behind the scenes, he's a leader. He, he's kind of yeah, yeah. gro- growing as an un, a, a under-the-radar leader for this team as one of the younger players that can be a part of the next guard of this organization. Things like practice habits, right? Like finishing every single run in the end zone, even if he's 80 yards away. He's always in the end zone at the end of every run. And uh, the energy that he brings, he's been mic'd up a few times and you see some of the energy and, and just some of the leadership qualities that he brings to the table. I would not rule out Damian Harris being here long-term. I, I really think that he's somebody that gets it. I think he understands it. I think it helps that he came from Alabama. And I think that that sort of prepared him to understand an organization like the Patriots. And I think his relationship with Mac will be a factor too. I, I think Mac wants to play with him and, and wants to hand the ball off to Damian Harris. And I think they might actually get something done there long-term, which means that you have Damian Harris from Andre Stevenson and then you have Pierre Strong in that pass catching back role. And I think that's the plan for the Patriots yeah. at running back in the long-term. I, I don't think the plan is to move on from Damian Harris but I think Kevin Harris was a pick an insurance policy, right? In case that Damian Harris gets too expensive, then they can fall back on Kevin Harris if they need to. But I think that they're more looking at Damian Harris as a part of the solution here and as a part of the long-term and and not necessarily somebody that they're ushering out. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's tough to say picture because, because the thing is Harris is going to, 
command a ton of money. You know, he's going to be a top three back on the market next year. He doesn't have a ton of miles on him relative to some of these other guys. If they're going to pay a running back, he fits the profile, right? He's a leader. He's a, you know, very physical football player. He's a tone setter, all of that. Yeah. Um, Relates to the city too. Like some of the things that he said at the Bruins game, when he was part of the banner captain ceremony, just about how he loves the atmosphere in Boston and he loves all the embracing all the other teams, you know, Bruins, Celtics, Red Sox and the Patriots and how it's kind of a brotherhood amongst the four teams here. And everybody's pulling towards championships together as a unit. I I just think he's a a really good glue guy to have around. Yeah. I, it's one of those things, as much as I want to believe it, I'll believe it when I see it, that they're actually going to pay it back, but he's certainly given them every reason to pay him. I think a lot of it comes down to what kind of season he has this year too. You know, if he comes out, he rushes for a thousand yards. He's gone. I mean, that's that. What's Somebody's the, gonna... What's the chance that in like six months we're talking about how they they didn't give Damian Harris carries early on in the season so that he didn't oh, break yeah. the bank in free agency? Oh yeah, no. But like yeah. you know, if, if he's just rotational and you know maybe that scares some other teams off in free agency, I think he's the textbook situation of they're gonna let him go out, get see what he's worth yeah, and then come back to them and give them a chance to match it. I just don't think they'll be able to match it. I just I think, think he's, he's also so money. perfect for the way they like to run that room because he is an no, RB. He's a Patriot. One. Like he's an, R- he's an RB one in a running back by committee situation, right? Like right. I don't think that he's Adrian Peterson that you're going to hand him the ball 400 times in the season, but he's the perfect guy to lead that group with Ramondre with Pierre strong and he's been in that situation his whole life, basically going back to Bama, where he's been with a bunch of talented running backs pretty much every step of the way. So he understands sharing the carries and sharing the load, and I think he embraces it in a lot of ways. All right, that's a lot of running back talk. So let's move on to another position here. Good conversation, though. Yeah, let's flip over to defense because we have been uh, doing offense here to start the show. This is a good question here by uh, by Court P, who's a uh, – a frequent listener. So we thank you very much for coming back every week. Who are the Patriots starting corners on day one? I'm assuming that court's talking about outside corners right here and not inside guys like uh, John Jones or uh, maybe Marcus Jones factors in there or something like that, but your boundary corners, the guys that are playing on the outside. I think he's onto something here with Jalen Mills and Malcolm Butler. If I, if the season were to start today, that would be my guess as to who's starting on the outside for the Patriots at corner. But I would also put the caveat in there that there is a chance that it could be somebody, it could be Terrence Mitchell if Malcolm Butler doesn't have it, right? If he doesn't have it anymore, then I think my the guy in the, uh, in the backup seat right now would be Terrence Mitchell. I think Jack Jones is somebody that I see kind of taking the J.C. Jackson path of rookie year. He flashes a little bit here and there. Same with Malcolm Butler, young Malcolm Butler, right? Like you have your flashes as a rookie, but you're really not a full-time player until your second season. What are your, what's your sense here on the cornerbacks? Well, I think the difference there is that I'm trying to remember Malcolm Butler's situation. Oh, Malcolm Butler's situation. They had Revis and and Browner, right? And then when J.C. Jackson came in, they had, uh, I think but it was yeah, Butler and Gilmore, right? Yeah. They don't have that kind of duo at the top of the depth chart. I, I agree that I think, you know, if they had to play a game today, which thankfully they don't, if they had to play a game today, it's Mills and Butler. Mills is back. He was good last year. Like he's penciled in at CB1 for better or worse. I think that's just the reality of it. Malcolm Butler, they tend to defer to veterans. 
especially guys who know the system. So I would think if you ask them today, if you ask them today, they'd say they, they're not playing a game today. But if you truth serumed Bill Belichick and he asked him who the top two cor- boundary corners were, uh, I think it would be Mills and Butler right now. That being said, I, I still think Jack Jones is the is the guy if anybody's going to unseat Malcolm Butler because he's a four, what, four or five-year contributor in college. Yeah. He's one of the better corners in the Pac-12 during that span. He's older, right? He, his body's more filled out physically. He's not your typical rookie. J.C. Jackson came in very raw. I don't know that Jones is physically as raw as Jackson was. We'll see what it looks like skill-wise on the field. But He is a little bit know, older, so you hope that right. his development physically is a little bit further. That's what, I'm, that, that's what I'm saying. Like, he's yeah. built more like an NFL corner at this point. You look at J.C. Jackson as a rookie, he's, you know, he's a string bean. He put a, he he put in work in the weight room in that first full off season. He had yeah. Jack Jones is kind of already there, so I think that that's definitely something to watch uh, in the coming weeks. And then when we get into training camp too, I think the battle between Butler because his last full NFL season he was a starting caliber player. He wasn't great. He wasn't the All Pro he was here, but he was fine, right? Yeah. But what is he going to look like after a year away from the game versus Jack Jones? What does he look like coming in as a rookie and how quick does he adjust? I think that's a real battle. Again, I think it's Butler today. If you ask me who that's going to be week one, I think it's a coin flip. I think there's a real chance Jack Jones can can win that role. And, you know, if we want to put on the true sports talk radio um, hats here for a second. Yeah. You know, if if Bill really is feeling the pressure from the fan base, from ownership, from whoever about the draft, what better way to kind of shake some of that off than take a corner he took in the fourth round and have him come in and be the starting outside corner week one and contribute and play well week one. Right. So I'm not ruling Jack Jones out of that role. I'm not, I think the qu- the question as, as it's asked today is correct, but Jack Jones and Butler throughout camp, that's one to watch. Yeah. I actually think that Jack Jones has a good chance of eventually taking that mantle because when I compared the two players or, or compared Jack Jones to a pro, my pro comp for Jack Jones was Malcolm Butler. I, I think when you watch those two guys play, they're very similar size. They have that strappy man coverage ability where they can stick and glue to guys in man coverage. They are really good matchup corners. Butler, obviously, in his prime and, you know, basing this off of the ceiling of Jack Jones. They're really good matchup corners for those Z receivers that are a little bit quicker at the top of the route that can get up the field but aren't these big guys, right? They're not going to go up against six foot three. Devontae Parker's, Gabriel Davis's, those types of receivers, but they are going to be able to stick with some of those uh, quicker, faster guys. I I think that they're really translatable skills to one another, which means that if Jack Jones is ready, then I think that he could push Malcolm Butler right out of the seat, right? I mean, that's that's pretty much a a pretty good overlap there. So obviously, if the younger player is ready, then I, I think that Jack Jones will be the guy that they call upon. It's hard because recent history they've been so deep at corner uh, jc jackson's career arc is not really a great comp malcolm butler's career arc is not really a great comp because they had guys they had revis they had browner right. they had logan ryan you know you can't really base it off of that i i remember pre that group right right before they traded for keep to leave afonso dennard i think was a rookie when they played him as much as they did in that 2011 2012 stretch i could be wrong if he was a rookie or not but i vaguely remember him he's definitely a young player i don't know if he was a first year player or not so there is some precedent for them playing a first year corner Uh, i just don't know if it's full time right away but if we're 
around Thanksgiving and Jack Jones starts to emerge as the starting corner on this team at that Z spot, right? You're covering those Z receivers. Wouldn't be surprised at all. I, I think that's, that's the hope, right? That's, that's the best case scenario is that at least midway through this season, he'll be ready to take that torch from Malcolm Butler or Terrence Mitchell or ends, ever ends up being there. It's pretty much a lock though, that Jalen Mills is going to be out there. Right. I mean, we, we both talked about it. We talked about it when they signed him. We've talked about it all last year. This is not the role that any of us want Jalen Mills to necessarily play in. This is not, I, mean, I don't even know if this was the role that they envisioned him playing in when they signed him. It's kind of happened due to necessity, but due to necessity, it feels like Jalen Mills is going to be an outside corner for them again this year. And he's pretty much the lock, I would say, out of that group to be a starting outside corner. And it's more about Butler, Mitchell, Jack Jones vying for that second outside cornerback spot and nothing to do with Jalen Mills. Is that how you feel too? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. All right. Let's let's talk about Mac. We don't talk about Mac. Okay. It, it, it's kind of weird, right? Like we don't really talk. Well, look, we we, we, we talked it. about him plenty enough last offseason. Fair enough. But we don't I feel like with the coaching stuff and, and all the turnover and yeah. roster yeah. turnover and the draft and all that kind of stuff has led us away from easily and you say this all the time easily the most important asset on the entire team which is the second year quarterback what are you looking for from mac in terms of improvement in year two i got a couple of things at the top of my head i'm curious to see what your answer is here because if he's the same guy that he was last year then he's a he's an average nfl starting quarterback and those are hard to come by and that's not necessarily a bad thing but i think we're all really optimistic and hopeful that he's going to take that next step and not be average going to be you know pushing top 10 by the end of the year yeah so i i think the one thing for me and this is something he improved on a lot as the season went on last year so i guess it's something for him to continue to improve on i think he was getting there just more, more, I want to see him be more confident, more decisive, right? Remember early in the year that we were kind of picking yeah. apart. It looked like he had the opportunity for some more intermediate and deep throws that he wasn't taking. And that's not uncommon for any young quarterback, yeah. right? You see that all the time, especially in offense as complicated as the Patriots. Later in the year, I think he started to take more of those chances and he started to hit on some of those chances. I just kind of want to see him continue to do that. He's going to have more downfield options this year. He should have more downfield options with the additions of, you know, Devontae Parker and Tyquan Thornton. So I'm interested to see, I just, you know what, to quote my second favorite quarterback of all time, go out there and sling it. That's kind of what I want to see him do. Just go out there. Is that, is that a Drew Bledsoe reference? That Yeah, yeah. You don't know that from Super Bowl 30? I knew it. I just wanted everybody to yeah. make sure that they knew yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. F that, just go out there and sling it. I, I just kind of want, and, and he, again, he did that sometimes last year, but I just want to see him go out there, throw the ball around the yard a little bit. Um, yeah. I think he, he'll be in a better position to do that this year. I don't think he alone was the reason that he was kind of timid at times last year, but you know, he's got the full year under his belt. I think he's built up a real good rapport with some of these receivers. We'll see how he gets going with Parker. He's already thrown with, and then with Tyquan Thornton, but I want to see him push the ball a little bit more. Hopefully they, they build an offense around, or, you know, they build an offense that kind of facilitates that. Uh, that's that's the big one for me. Just just being more confident what he's doing now that he has a year of experience under his belt. Yeah, I think that's exactly where I was going to go with it, too. I think it goes hand in hand with improving velocity, which I think is something that he's worked at a ton, especially in the offseason with Tom House and some of the other people that he's been training with. 
to get a little bit more zip. You're not going to go, we say this all the time, you're not going to go from where he was last year to Josh Allen's status in terms of arm strength, but you can improve it within the margins. I think a little bit more zip on the fastball and ability to get the, the ball into those tight windows over the middle of the field will give him that confidence to be a little bit more aggressive. Yeah, He, he was last year as a rookie, was very, very good at protecting the football. I know he threw 13 interceptions. That's pretty average, right? That's about, yeah. For a rookie quarterback. Here's the thing about that. Real quick, with the interception numbers, we've been spoiled, and I noticed this, like, when I played Madden, right? Yeah. We're used to, like, eight interceptions being a horrible season. That's unreal. Yeah. Anything single digits is unreal. 13 interceptions from a rookie quarterback, you'd like to see that maybe come down around 10, especially a guy who plays the way back plays. And I'm, like... 13 is fine for him as a rookie. I'm saying as he moves forward, get that number around 10. But the interceptions last year didn't worry me at all, especially since four or five of them were just off of guys' hands to the defender. Like, we're not his fault. Yeah, there were there were definitely a few games here and there. I remember the Houston game in particular stands out early where he did throw a lot of interceptable passes. You know, PFF tracks turnover worthy plays, plays that aren't necessarily picked off, but are plays that probably should have been picked off. There were a few instances of those happening too, but he actually ranked really well in terms of turnover worthy play percentage too. So this was not a player that had a ball security issue. So with that in mind, I would like to see him be a little bit more aggressive. I think throwing the football short over the middle, he was always going to be good at. But that intermediate to deep middle, you know, the the 10 plus yard throws in the middle of the field, you would like to see him be able to dot it a little bit more in the middle of the field there to open up that quadrant of, of the field, which I, we know is an important area for this Patriots offense. So it goes hand in hand, aggressiveness, zip on the fastball, that to me is really the next step. The one thing that always stands out with to Matt with Mac too, even today talking to Ty Montgomery for 10, 15 minutes, his answer about Mac Jones, his football IQ, like his brains in this game are off the charts to everybody that's around him. Like his football yeah, acumen yeah. is really, really high. So I don't think that it's a matter of he doesn't see it or or doesn't know where to go with the football. It's more about trust and aggressiveness. And, and hopefully we see that next step come to fruition. I think it happens for a lot of young quarterbacks that you got to get used to the idea of throwing into tight windows. Like in college, you're just throwing to open guys all the time. NFL opens a different definition, right? There's a different definition. There's a different barometer of what's open. So, yeah, I think we're on the same page with Mac. uh, Although is this guy guy still in the chat saying that we spent all last year saying Cam was better than Mac? I'm still waiting for that clip, buddy. It's been a year. Anytime. Anytime you want to show us, show me where I – Evan might have said it. Anytime you want to show me where I said that, you know, I'll, I'll keep waiting. I don't know when I would have said that. It was pretty clear, but almost right away in training camp that Mac was better than Cam. We knew it. We just were playing both sides of it because there was a really good chance that Cam was also going to be the starter to start the season. I don't know when we ever said that, but don't let the don't let the when I ever said it. All right, all right. Let's talk defense again. I like this question because it's something I've been thinking about a little bit. I, I wrote about it last week in, in my mailbag. The, I don't, I try not to get too caught up in alignment, right? Like four, three, three, four. I think they, they really look at it from a week to week proposition, game plan, defense, all that kind of stuff. And they don't get too caught up in what's our base. Like, I I don't know if that's necessarily something that they think a ton about, but we talked so much 
all offseason, all draft season about nose tackles. And then they pass on a really good two-gapping nose tackle class. They didn't sign any UDFAs. They didn't replace Kyle Van Noy on the edge of the defense. Maybe they think that's going to come internally with Ronnie Perkins or Josh Uche. But this idea that they could be an even front team now, I, I hesitate to call it a 4-3 just because they don't play with three linebackers anymore, but a four-down defensive line. I, I really like the idea of it. I think in particular, what I love so much about it is Barmore getting full-time reps as a three technique is really intriguing because that's the spot that he can really eat at, that Aaron Donald spot in the defense. That's where you want a guy like Christian Barmore to be at ideally. So do you see them going to more even fronts? It's not totally unheard of for the Patriots. They've done it mid-2010s. They were more of a 4-3 team versus an odd front 3-4 uh, where do you see this going? But I, I, if they were going to be a true nose tackle team again, a true odd front team, you would have thought that they would have brought in another big body and not just Carl Davis, like another yeah. young big body. So where do you think this is going? I, 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 you're probably right. I'm just worried now, and this sounds crazy to say after last year. I'm, a little, I'm worried they're a little too small on defense. Am I nuts for that? Like up front, depends on how they want to play, right? I mean. I guess I think that's one of the appeals. Of, it's one of the appeals of having four down, right? Is because you can be, you're going to have to have, you have more gaps covered on the line of scrimmage, right? right. So you don't have to have as many got, big bodies behind that line. It does allow you to run around a little bit more if you're in that odd, uh, even front team. But what I would say is this is a team that, like, let's be honest, in, you know, if we're talking true base, whether it's three or three, four, how often are they going to be in that? Not a ton. I don't think they're going to yeah. be in that a ton. I think they're going to, they have all these safeties, right? They're going to want to get these guys on the field. It's a lot easier to pull somebody out of the front if you're basing that off a three, four than a four, three, right? You know, because, okay, so now is it going to be like a, make sure I get my math right in my head here. Are you going to have like a four, two, five? Are you going to have a four, one, six? Like that's suddenly what you're talking about. And now you're getting really, there are ways to attack that that you can't necessarily cover up, not with their personnel. Whereas if you have the three down linemen, you can just be a little more fluid with how you align. So I I don't think they're going to be in 3-4, 4-3 a ton either way. I think it's going to be a lot of dime, a lot of nickel with Kyle Duggar, Jabril Peppers, Adrian Phillips essentially being a linebacker. It's just much easier to facilitate that, right, if you're – if. I don't want to say if your base is three linemen because I'm saying they're playing at a base. It's a lot easier to facilitate that if your main personnel involves, you know, three linemen who are playing that three, four scheme instead of, well, you were in a four, three, again, base. Now you take one of those guys off. So it's really a three, four with four, three personnel. That to me just doesn't like, this sounds like a mess, right? I can't even keep track of what I'm saying. Yeah. It does sound like a mess to a degree, but I think when you start to think about the alignment, right? You start to think about Judon in that what's really called a Leo or a Rio, depending on which side, which is an, a designated pass rusher role, right? It, it's really something that Seattle and their 4-3 uh, in particular started. That role, I think, really would behoove Judon a lot, would really allow him to just kind of pin his ears back. Then you talk about a one-gap three technique for Barmore, which would also allow him to get up the field. You talk about two-gap Devon Godshaw, and then you two gap and end, right? Like a Henry Anderson or a Dietrich Wise out on the outside. I think that that 
even front makes a lot of sense on paper. I think everybody would be comfortable with doing that. The question that I have about going the other direction with the three, four is, is are more, I feel like I have more questions, right. Of, okay, well, who can Godshaw be a true nose? Do they have another outside linebacker to play on the line of scrimmage opposite of Judon? Like those are bigger questions to me than, if they move to a four down front and they have those guys in those spots that I just named, I feel like that transition works out better. I I, I don't know. Maybe I'm getting too caught in the weeds here about these alignments, but it, it feels to me like Godshaw, for instance, as a one technique in the shade, right in the a gap, instead of straight up over the center is going to make him a more effective player. I feel like to me, Christian Barmore in the three technique is going to make him a more effective player. I think that that's really where I'm at with it. And I don't know, maybe we'll see what happens, but again, it's not completely unprecedented for Bill Belichick to switch back and forth. Like he's done it before. So I I think a lot of people think he's only a three, four guy, which is not the case. He's been a little bit of everything all the time, which uh, you know, is why it's kind of hard to predict, or maybe we're getting too lost in the minutia. I think that sometimes with these types of things, because they're always going to do a little bit of both, right? Some weeks they're going to be three, four, some weeks they're going to be a four, three, and it really doesn't matter along these lines. I think what's interesting uh, about this conversation is Ronnie Perkins, right? Because I think this is one player too. They didn't lead it on as much as Cam McGrone, but I I think that they're hopeful that Ronnie Perkins is going to step up and step in to a, a big role here. He's 250, 255. Like he's built, like a three, four outside linebacker. He's not built like a four, three end. So although he played that in college, I I do think the plan is to continue to develop Ronnie Perkins in a two point stand up role as an outside linebacker and not put his hand back in the dirt. Like he did at Oklahoma. Yeah. I, one of those guys, whether it's him, Uche, somebody, I think they're, they're, you know, counting on, on on somebody to step up. Perkins played with this, like you said, with his hand in it, in the dirt at Oklahoma, but I think that was more of a scheme thing. I think he's a stand-up guy here. We saw him work out some as a stand-up guy here last year. Um, I, I think that's the plan. Yeah, I'm, I'm with sorry, you. Breaking college football news. What was happening in college football? Tell me. Actually, this is interesting because it's going to put you. It's going to put uh, one of your takes to the test here. Okay. Uh, Jordan Addison, who was the Blitnikoff winner last year, best receiver in college football, is a true sophomore. He was at Pitt. He is transferring. So he, he was going to transfer. He got a big NIL deal. It was between Alabama, Texas, and USC. And he's going to USC. So this will be an interesting test of your theory of hating the Pac-12 because right now he projects as, at worst, the third best receiver in, in next year's class. Some people have him as number one with Jackson, Smith, and Jigba. That's obviously saying a lot. You know, he was at Pitt, so it's really hard to tell what he can do, but We'll, we'll we'll test just how much you hate Big Twelve guys next year because I think you're really gonna like Addison. He, he's he's a, a speedy route runner type, right? Uh, he's not like a yeah. big bodied receiver. Well, he's remember. big, but he's he runs. Yeah, you know, he's a technician. Yeah, yeah, he's he's not you know he's not Nikhil Harry, right? He's not Drake London. He's he's a guy that, that get, gets in and out of a break. No, so he's my, he's like he, he's like one of those one of the Ohio State guys. He, he, I'd put him in like the Alave Garrett Wilson. Yeah, my, my type of guy is what you're saying. Yeah. All right, yeah, so All right. Be interesting. but you hate the Pac-12, so as seen, you know now now with Lincoln Riley, it does feel a little bit different, right? Like it feels 
like it'll at least be coached up in a different way. Right. Than, oh, that's you your know. team too, right? Aren't you like a, a low key USC fan? Uh, yeah, you know, I lived out there for a few years, yeah. and and that was a team that I kind of gravitated towards when I was out there. I saw a whole lot of Sam Darnold live uh, when I was out in LA. He was in college at the same time that I was out there. I saw him in the Rose Bowl. It was Saquon Barkley and Penn State against Saquon Barkley and Penn State. So that was a fun game to watch live. And yeah, there was some USC in me. A little Trojan, a little fight on. All right. Should we do the Boston Sports Minute? I'm wearing green. Did you notice there that? There you go. Um, wearing some Celtics Do you want to do the Boston Sports Minute first? Or while we're on this, can I finish my college football? Yeah, minute? go ahead. Go on your college football right. rant. Yep. If, if you're not... A, a college football fan now now is the time to get involved if if you didn't see it this morning well so it started yesterday nick saban was at a dinner or something and he was talking about how they got the second best recruiting class in the nation because texas a&m with the number one class bought their entire class referencing the nil deals and players yeah. paid etc he's not entirely incorrect by the way and nothing that he's saying is illegal nothing that a&m did is illegal it's something that hasn't been done for years it's just legal now Anyways, apparently Jimbo Fisher had a huge problem with Nick Saban saying that and went scorched earth on him this morning. He he just did. Yeah. Yeah. He talked about, he said, Saban thinks he's a God. Talk to anybody who ever coached with him. They hate him, which by the way, indirectly calling out Bill Belichick there um, said, Saban doesn't do anything right that he should have been smacked in the head as a child. That was, um, you know, that, that, the government should come after Saban more or less is what he said. Just, just an absolute takedown of Nick Saban. Uh, this is the second time he's done that this year, by the way, Lane Kiffin made a comment that actually was a dig. Nothing Saban said was a dig. I think he was just trying to entice his donors to give him more money. Lane Kiffin said Texas A&M was going to have to pay a luxury tax. That's a legitimate dig. Anyway, Jimbo Fisher, thin skin. This is the second time he's done it. By the way, when he says, yeah, talk to anybody who's coached for him. You mean you, Jimbo? When you're with him at LSU? You mean you? Or you mean somebody who's confident enough to actually, you know, say what's on their mind instead of just him and haw around it? Or you don't have anything and you're just throwing out vague threats because you're mad Saban's whooped your ass up and down the SEC for the better part of a decade. And sure, you got him last year and you were the first assistant to beat him. That's impressive. And then, you know, you kissed the ring after you won him. I wonder what changed. But my God, just just a rough look. He, he gets so sensitive every time, you know, people suggest kids go to A&M because they get paid. Nobody dug at the kids, which is, he also said Saban took a dig at the kids. He did not. Yeah. Nobody dug it at you. He's like, well, you know, Texas A&M is a great college and the academics are great. And it's a great environment and all of that. Like, it is a good time down there i I guess nobody's faulting you that you need money to recruit kids that's what college athletics has always been i don't know why you're taking it so personally anyway alabama texas a&m october 8th it's going to be awesome epic great grudge match and just to tie it back to the patriots real quick that was out of hand what jimbo fisher did today there's really never been anything like it there's something called you know the term mutual destruction is used like the reason there never be nuclear wars because if one side struck, it would just destroy everybody. The idea is every program's dirty. If one coach calls out another coach for being dirty, it goes back and forth. There's never been anything like this before. Saban came out today. This was a couple of minutes ago. He apologized for his comments, which he's doing because he's Nick Saban. He's taking the high road. He's a winner and that's what winners do. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's legitimate bad blood there. And I 
I'm going to remember this next year when we do the draft. I don't know that I'm mocking any Texas A&M prospects of the Patriots. I would not be surprised if if Bill does Nick a solid here and kind of puts the blinders onto that school for a little bit. It's Eric Mangini. It's it, it's Eric Mangini times a thousand. But yeah, that's I, like the. I don't even know if it's. T- I mean, Eric Mangini ratted to Bill Belichick out to the NFL, so I don't. I don't know if it's times a thousand. It's so it's 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 similar. if Eric Mangini routed Bill out in public and then said he should have gotten beaten as a child. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That was a little bit yeah. much. This is the college. This is how you try to get me into actual college football, not just the draft, but actual college football. Right. Every year is the drama, right? You tell well, you me like, you like reality shows. You watch like reality. above deck and the bachelor and stuff. Above so deck. It's, it's below deck, whatever it is. Below it's deck. like that, but also above with football. Deck. So <laughs> you're cracking me up. I, I think it is interesting. Like, look, I, I won't deny. I will definitely be watching that game. I mean, how could you not? Yeah. Like as a sports fan, that's now, that's theater, right? That's theater. And Alabama, correct me if I'm wrong, should probably win that game like 100 to nothing, right? They're favored by 16 and a half. Again, A&M are the best recruiting class, but and that's their second grudge match with the state of Texas, by the way, because Steve Sarkeesian did Saban 30 as well, took all his assistants on the way out and took them to Austin, horns down. So, yeah, there's going to be some – Alabama's going to be must-watch. Saban didn't get the title last year. He felt like he er, he should have gotten – that team should have gotten. You had the Heisman winning quarterback, all of that. Georgia ultimately, I think, was the better team. That defense was yeah. generational. But I think Saban is coming in with a massive chip on his shoulder this year. This is – you know, we talked about grunge Belichick in 07, uh, you know, after yeah. deflate game. Well, I think we're really getting grunge Saban this year. I can't wait. And to be fair, too, to Saban – not that's the wrong phrasing, but for Saban, you had your two best players on your roster. I, I would make the case come back, which is rare, right? Will Anderson so, and Bryce Young come yeah, back. Yeah. Most of the time when you have guys that are that good in college football, they're draft eligible and they're going on, they're moving on to the pros. Right. So the fact that Saban gets his Heisman trophy quarterback back and the consensus number one pick in the draft back and Will Anderson he better win one this year. I'm not saying he's gonna get fired if he doesn't. Like he's Nick Saban, but you no, know, there's I, mean. a, I get what you're saying. There's a lot on the table for him this year. This yeah. is a legacy year. You don't really yeah. think you say that for the winningest coach in the history of the sport, but this is a legacy year for Nick Saban. He can, I, I think he wants to rip through this thing. I think he wants, he saw what Georgia did last year and what Kirby did last year, right? And they had, I just said it, a generational year. I think Nick Saban expects this to be a generational year for Alabama. And, you know, he's apologizing because he's playing it down, but. Uh, I, I I I think Jimbo just just fed the fire today. I don't think Jimbo knew what he was stepping in when he did that today. I think he's in no. trouble. Now it you was, just can't leave. It, it was also one of those uh, you could tell by his face that some of the things that he said, especially towards the end of the press conference, he was like, "Oh crap!" Like, did I actually say that out loud? Like that? Right. Probably- he said he just it was an impulse thing. So this happened last night. Say, Saban yeah. made the initial comments last night. They had the, they scheduled the press conference. This wasn't originally scheduled. They put it on the schedule this morning. He ran out there, spur of the moment. And, and yeah, he said, you can tell that's been building for a little bit, but the yeah. whole, I'm not taking his calls. It was an emotional thing. Um, he said, oh, he said, I, I, you know, I love confrontation. Meanwhile, Texas A&M turned the YouTube comments off on that, on the press conference. But yeah. that was an emotional thing for me. I can't. SEC media days in like two weeks. They, I think they're at podiums next to each other. It's going to be great. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, let's talk a little Boston sports before we sign off yeah, here. Sure. I want I want a quick minute here on the Bruins because what's happening with the front office and, and with Bruce Cassidy is, is driving me up a wall. So it's becoming abundantly clear with the Bruins that Cam Neely and Don Sweeney, who obviously overlapped as players here in Boston and go way back and, and I think are, are pretty good friends off the ice in terms of them, be, their job security, right? It's pretty clear that Cam Neely has Don Sweeney's back, but doesn't have Bruce Cassidy's back. And if you ask me, they got the wrong guy, right? Like Bruce Cassidy's been fine. It's Don Sweeney who's the problem, or at least who needs to do better at his job. But because of the politics of it all, if there needs to be a fall guy, it's going to be Bruce, which I I just find to be absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Cam Neely goes out there and he says, we're working on a contract extension for Don Sweeney. Meanwhile, then he throws Bruce under the bus and throws a ton of shade at the coaching staff and says they need to be better. Uh, your boy needs to be better, right? Like your, your pal needs to be better. It's Sweeney that needs to be better at his job. I'm very, very concerned with the direction of the Bruins right now because I, I think they end up firing Cassidy at, after next year if it doesn't go the right direction, right? Like if that's not – if they are not more competitive next year, I think that Cassidy ends up being the fall guy. And that sucks. Cause like you said, they got the wrong guy. They got it backwards. I think Cassidy's done as much as he can with what he's been given. It's just a matter of what he's been yeah. given. And that obviously comes down to, to Sweeney and Neely. So it doesn't feel like things are going to get any, it feels like things have to get worse before they get better. Right. But yeah, it just think, it, it feels like they're going to run it back. Like they're going to talk Bergeron into coming back. They're going to run it back, and then the team's going to get bounced in the first round again. And then they're going to sit there and they're going to blame Cassidy. It's like you just you gave them the same exact roster and expected a different result. I, I just that that's the part of it that really bugs me is if you're going to blame somebody, blame the person that's putting their team together because Cassidy can clearly right, get a right. team to the Stanley Cup final if you give him the roster. He's shown that. He's proven that multiple and times. He, you know what's funny about it too? Part of the reason they're in this situation is they've had a string of bad drafts. And what, what have we talked about so much in regards to the Patriots, right? That, you know, yeah. Bill's drafting has put them in this spot and all the talk about what well, do you take the GM keys away from Bill and have him just be the coach and build a coach first, be the GM. And it's complicated because you can't really do that when it's one guy. It's two guys with the Bruins. Yeah. It's two guys. You can get rid of the GM and keep the coach. Right. The drafting is a big part of it. Seeing some of the, the, the discourse from Bruins fans today, it sounds a lot like the people in our chat talking about the Patriots, right? So yeah, drafts I, aren't going to get any better if you get rid of the coach. It's just Yeah, I, I said that to Jess earlier. It's a lot of overlap, right, with the, the right. Bruins and the Patriots right now in terms of where they're at as organizations. Like At least the Patriots, I guess, the one thing they have over the Bruins is that they have the quarterback, and it's a different right. sport, so the quarterback's obviously more important. But the Bruins have McAvoy. The Bruins have Swayman. You know, they got young players too, so it's not completely a departure there either. All right. Uh, let's wrap it up with the Celtics uh, game two tonight, Al Horford, Marcus smart back in the lineup. That's key for Boston. Derek, Wright, We uh, Derek white, excuse me. We know his situation. He's back in Boston with his wife, a uh, birth of his child. So he's not going to play tonight. Do you like the Celtics tonight, Alex? I, I, I do like them tonight because this team, if what they've done so far all season long is for real, and they're really that type of team when they get punched in the mouth, they punch back harder. Like that's just been their season all season long. So it does kind of feel like they should win game two, right? If the Celtics that 
January 6th, they're below 500 and they're, they're a bad team. And then they come back and they're number two in the East. The Celtics that were down three, two to the bucks in the second round, that Celtics team would win tonight. Yeah. And, and what is it? 10 and one in their last 11 games after a loss. Yeah. Re- realistically, they needed to go into Miami and take one or two. I, I don't think anybody thought this was going to be a sweep. I don't think anybody thought this series was going to be easy. It never was going to be, you know, no. you compound that you lose two of your starters for, for the first game. And obviously that, that, kind of narrows the margin of error, but I think if they win tonight, you know, they it's, it's, it, it kind of reminds me where they were after game five against the bucks, right. Where it felt like that collapse could be a tipping point and it could be it, yeah. but it felt like if they just got one and they steadied themselves, they'd be in good shape. And here we are again, right. If they win tonight, they take one or two in Miami, which they realistically always needed to do. They kind of erased that third quarter, uh, uh, the third quarter collapsed because, okay, they've now won since and, and winning cures yeah. all, right? It's a very popular sports cliche for a reason. And you come back to Boston 1 1 with the momentum. So if they win tonight, and I think they can win tonight, if they win tonight, they're in good shape, but they do have to win tonight. If they lose tonight, I, I think they're in big trouble. Yeah. And, and I put a lot of this tonight, and I, I know it will help. I think it will really help with Marcus Smart and, and Al Horford back to take the ball in a way, actually out of the Jays' hands, right? So they don't have to be the primary ball handlers every time. That's big, yeah. Yeah, I think that was huge for them in terms of spacing, in terms of operating the offense through that high post area with Al Horford. Uh, That's a really big part of the distribution of of their half-court offense. So I think that's going to really help them out. But you still need more from the Jays. Like, those two guys got to play better. Uh, Jalen, I think, almost in particular, like, I know Jason Tatum had the bad second half and kind of disagreed, uh, disappeared, excuse me, a little bit there down the stretch in the second half. But Jalen Brown's handle, he's been sloppy with the basketball. Uh, he hasn't been himself. He was a little bit better in the fourth quarter towards the end of game one. So hopefully he can build off of that. But I'm looking at both of those guys. They got to step up. And in this series, it feels like this – he he didn't necessarily cement himself as better than Giannis, but he at least knocked Giannis out in the playoffs talking about Jason Tatum. He should be better than Jimmy Butler at this stage, right? Like he should be the best player in this series. No disrespect to Jimmy Butler. Who's great and really underrated, but he should be better than Jimmy Butler is at this stage of his career. So let's see it. You know, let's see it Tatum. Like this is, this is his time to kind of do it again. Right. He's he played, he outplayed KD in round one point blank. He outlasted Giannis. Let's see him take it from Jimmy Butler too, because he's a better player than Jimmy Butler, I think. Yeah, you know, I, I, I mean, we could do the Felgren Maz draft the draft the series thing, right? And it's I would go Tatum, Butler, Brown, Smart, and then I don't. Where do you go? I, maybe probably Robert Williams actually. Right? I, I think Bam Adebayo has got to be up there. Bam Adebayo. Okay. Would you? Well, Bam, Bam. So okay, let's go. Who are you taking first? Let's draft the series. Who are you taking first? After after game one, I'm tempted to take Jimmy Butler, to be honest with you. I still think it's Tatum. Tatum I think one. it's Tatum, too. I, I think Tatum, okay. I think Butler's de- definitely number two, if not number one. Butler's right? two. Jalen yeah. Brown's three. And then you can kind of... I think Bam Adebayo's four. Okay. Tyler Hero's awesome, but he's... Got, I, I'll take Marcus Smart or Robert Williams over Tyler Hero. He's not he's as good on... He, he, Tyler Hero is one of those guys that comes up with a couple of steals a game, which makes it looks like look like he's decent on defense. But the analytics... I know you hate the math, but the analytics hate Tyler Hero on defense. They think he's a... He's a well, because he's not good on defense. Yeah. What did you say? 
because he's not good on defense. Yeah, no, he just gets like two steals a game and makes him look like he, he's doing something. But He gets a lot of steals because teams attack him. It's like the corner yeah. that gets, you know, six interceptions in a season but gives up 10 touchdowns. Yeah, so uh, I'm with you that I think the Celtics clearly have the if you're drafting the series, you're taking more Celtics in the top five than you're taking heat. Right. I think we knew that going in. The The question really is, and you mentioned this to me before when I, in the first half, when I was riding high about the Celtics the other night, this heat team doesn't quit. Like they got a lot of, they got a motor, right? Like they're, they play hard for four straight quarters. And we saw in that third quarter, the second the Celtics let off the gas a little bit, this is not like the Bucks who just go on a little bit of a run to get back into the game. Right. They'll just kill you with an avalanche, right? Like they have an over. actual motor. Yeah, it's over. So you can't let off the gas at all. The Celtics are are prone to that a little bit, right? That they they will take lapses or take plays off, take stretches off. You can't do that with this Miami Heat team because you'll look up and you'll be down 15 points. Right. Yeah, no, you can't. This this my, uh, the Bucks go as Giannis goes. Like, it's that simple. Yeah. And when Giannis has to come out of the game or when he's getting gassed on defenses, that's just it, right? Yeah. Miami, Jimmy Butler knows no, there's no quit in Jimmy Butler. Oh, and God, the rest of the team kind of keys in on that. And Bam can get going and these other guys can get going, right? This is a different series. You can't let your guard down. You just can't. And I think that's what the Celtics did in the third quarter. I absolutely love Jimmy Butler as a player. But, man, when your team is playing him, he is a frustrating guy to play against. You know, the fouls, he gets to the line constantly, the pump fakes and just waits for guys to land on top of him. And he's a frustrating player to play against, really is. And a lot of it, you know, you should love it, Alex. He's he's an old school guy. Like, he's a Oh, I love, I love Jimmy Butler. No I, threes, he's mid-range Jimmy, all day long. Yeah. There, there, what, there, a while back, that was one of the rumors that the Celtics are going to try to trade for Jimmy Butler. And most of those I rolled my eye at, right? We went through all those. Anthony Davis, Paul yeah. George, DeMarcus Cousins. Like, how many of those did we go through, right? Jimmy Butler was one of the few that I was like, yeah, I'm in on that one. I can see it. Ultimately, it worked yeah. out they didn't do I, it right, but... I love watching Jimmy Butler. I'd love to have him on my yeah. team. He's fun to watch. Yeah, oh, he's a pain in the ass to play against, but he's he's a really good, really, really good basketball player. All right, so that does it for us here today. Wraps up the Boston Sports Minute. Uh, we will be back on Tuesday to recap day one of Patriots OTAs. Alex and I will actually be out at Gillette Stadium uh, next Tuesday, or next Monday, excuse me, on Monday, I should say to uh, watch uh, day one of OTAs first day of uh, phase three of the off season. So we'll actually see some offense and defense. We'll see some real seven on seven and 11 on 11 football. So it should be a good time. No pads, but at least some uh, passing game stuff will get done in that day on Monday. So we'll recap everything that we see on Monday here on Patriots Beat on Tuesday. And we're really looking forward to that show. These are my favorite shows of the year. I love the draft shows too, but I love the camp shows. Those ones get me excited. And I know you guys uh, really want to know what happened. And I know these practices are not open to the public. So you got to come here. You got to come to Patriots Beat to find out what happened because you can't get in. So there you go. All right. So we'll we'll see everybody on Tuesday. Thanks so much for watching and go Celtics.